Anabaptists have typically cared a lot about community. Our guest for this episode is Kyle Stolzfus. Kyle is an instructor at Faith Builders Educational Programs, a pastor at Shalom Mennonite Church, and a father of four. Anabaptists have typically cared a lot about community. So start out by talking a bit about the ways that we think about and do community. The thinking about and there's the doing. Um, one of the ways that uh, Anabaptists have talked about and thought about the way they forms, formed their communities is kind of borrowed and adopted from uh, Luther, and that's the two kingdom concept, which I think we've probably done some work on with Anabaptist perspectives before, but basically it's that um, there's two different kingdoms on earth. There's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. And that the kingdom of light is characterized for Anabaptists by being a peaceful kingdom, by being a, a kingdom that's entered into voluntarily, and a kingdom that's structured after the glory of Christ and obedience to him. Whereas the kingdom of darkness is, is characterized by violence and it's, there's coercion and there's disobedience and there's a refusal to, uh, to submit to the spirit and to Christ. So these two, these two kingdoms are set up as being in conflict with each other. And it's expected then, of course, that for a Christian, there's a choice. Which kingdom are you going to be part of? And when a Christian chooses to enter the kingdom of light, they're going to structure their life and they're going to order their community in a way that gives credit to Jesus and gives credit to the kingdom of light. I, I do feel like I, I need to be quick to say that the the Anabaptists, you know, that's that's one of the ways that we've that we've thought about this, but the way that's been practiced has been kind of varied. There's there's some contours to it, but it, they're not a homogenous group. They they haven't been all the way since the beginnings. So there's some there is some variety here, and I'm speaking generally, which um, is always kind of a dangerous thing to do when you're characterizing groups. But I, I would I would at least suggest that the pattern of life that that, that comes out of living in this new kingdom, uh, it's it's going to at least have some aspects to it of worship and of practices that come together. It's a worshiping community and it's a practicing community. You know, baptism has always been fairly thick with with worship and centering our lives on that, and also with practices by which we show how we are the body of Christ in the world and demonstrate that. So, so, for instance, Anabaptists have practiced community by regularly coming together for, for preaching, for uh, the study of the Bible, for prayer, for the Lord's Supper, for baptism. And these have been mandatory parts of the life of the community. You can't, you can't really be an Anabaptist and just be selective about all of these things, at least not for very long, right? It's going to be an expectation that you're oriented in toward the worshiping center of the community. And, and alongside that, and just tied right in, there's, there's a whole network of practices that form an Anabaptist community. I'm meaning things like mutual support and sharing, 
there's the practice of, uh, of marriage, it's hugely significant. You could think of marriage in different ways. I'm suggesting it here as something that people and communities enter into together. There's the practice of non-retaliation, of, of fellowship and accountability to each other, of outreach and relief. You can go on and on and on. But there's, there's, there's going to be practices also as part of this community. So I'm at least suggesting that, yes, Anabaptists have practiced community. We tended to talk about it within a, a kind of a two-kingdom framework but then have a fairly concrete sense of what that means and that we worship together. And then there's, there's some practices that we have together which form the life of our community. So talking about community in this way and framing it within the two kingdom concept, it's rehashing things that we as Anabaptists are very familiar with. And I think probably many people in our audience are also familiar with that. But we don't have an exclusive claim on talking about community, especially in the past few decades. Yeah. Many other Christians have also been talking about community. So I'd be interested to hear you comment on that. What's happening there? Yeah. Well, you're right. It's very interesting to watch where community is coming up. Christians are talking a lot about community right now. Uh, throw out a couple of examples because they're recent. I, I was reading uh, Jeffrey Bilbro, Reading the Times is the name of the book. He's talking about Christians and how we think about the news and how we respond to the endless news cycles that are out there. Here, here's what surprised me about the book, or just took me back a little bit. The first two thirds of the book are talking about various and sundry things about the news. The last third of the book, the whole third of the book is, is talking about community. So he has an issue, and the way he addresses that issue is by saying, okay, let's talk about community now. I've seen similar things in some of the work that I get to do in, in ethics dealing with, say, gender issues. Big topic these days. And a significant number of Christians aren't so caught up anymore about talking about how they can form public policy or make more convincing arguments to the broader culture. So much as saying, let's talk about communities. Communities that understand what human sexuality is about and the beauty of it, but also offer their communities as, as havens, places of refuge, but also of discernment and correction. I mean, just mentioning that, that can set us off on a wild goose chase about all kinds of issues. The point here is just that it's becoming much more common for Christians to offer community as a either a solution for problems that we're facing or just as some kind of visible alternative to the, the kind of late liberal assumptions and the kind of community that's being offered. So I think you're onto something there. So why are these Christians talking about it now? Also, you raised two different, um, perhaps opposing or different takes on community. I'd be interested to hear you fill in more details about that. What, what are these different approaches? Those are two important questions. Why are they talking about community now? And how? And I, you're, you're right in suggesting there's maybe two different ways to just present the pools of it a little bit, a little unfair, a little hasty maybe, but it's helpful, so we'll do that. I'll present the pools of how it is Christians are talking about it, but first maybe address that why question just a little bit. Two basic reasons why that come to mind. The first why question is just that Christians haven't been talking about community enough. We've been preoccupied uh, since the Reformation with other issues. A lot of 
theological energy anyway has gone into making these uh, clear distinctions between the various groups that have come out of the Reformation, those have taken some energy. And accompanying that, there just hasn't been enough conversation about community, what it does actually look like to be a Christian, not just what are the theological differences, but on the ground, how does this actually work out? Right alongside that is that Christians are feeling kind of exposed in Western countries, particularly in America. They, they're feeling exposed because for many Christians, there have been a lot of assumptions about a basically stable secular community, this kind of global secularism that many Christians have just assumed. There's less and less Christians who are assuming, for one, that the secular ideal of community is actually okay for Christians, that it's going to be sustainable, but they're also questioning, is this durable? How much longer can we depend on secularism to continue to provide a basically stable place for our communities to survive? So you see those two working together. We haven't been talking about enough, and, and now we're, it's kind of being illuminated. Like You need to care about community right now because it's not quite sure whether secular community is Christian in any way, and also we're not sure if, if it's... Um, if it's going to be very stable for us in the future. That's a little bit of why. How? Here I'm going to offer two basic frameworks, and please interrupt me if you'd like to. The one way of approaching Christian community used to be much more bought into these secular ideas of community. Not so much anymore. The other way of talking about community never really was quite so tied in, although they conceded a little bit more than uh, maybe what they ought to have. And those, those two ways you might talk about in terms of the communitarian orientation and the more traditional evangelical orientation. I'll start with the evangelical perspective on community. For evangelicals, there's, there's always a real celebration. There's a focus of the, the saving activity of God on our behalf. And there's, when they talk about community, there's, there's talk about the word of God going out, say through preaching, and the, the, the work of the spirit of God in people's lives. And there's conversion and there's repentance from sin. And, and these, these are all good things to focus on. But, but the, the, the suggestion for communities that the, for the Christian, for the Christian, our life and the formation of our community, which is the church, it's deeply dependent on some kind of exterior source. You'd say it's extra nos. It comes from outside of us through Christ and the spirit. They come and they usher us in through repentance and faith into this community, which is the church. And we find each other in that community. You repent, and as I repent, and we come to Christ in faith, we find each other. But they also they come from outside of us. So community becomes a place where people freely acknowledge how destitute they are, apart from the work of Christ, apart from the work of grace and faith, and how dead they are, and they hear and they respond to God's word and to God's grace in the context of that community. And there's celebration there of, 
of redemption and of repentance, of uh, the innocence, the blessedness that, that comes as a result of that work of God on our behalf. That's part of what we do. We, we speak words to each other. We speak words of peacefulness. We speak words of restitution, of blessedness, and we declare each other to be innocent like we are in Christ. And that forms the center of the Christian community. So that's, that's kind of a picture of a, a, a traditional evangelical take on how community happens and this, this large movement exterior to us that, that speaks something into existence. And when we find each other there, there's the Christian community. I'd, I'd add, though, that more and more uh, evangelicals are realizing that the kinds of people who even have the words, who have the language to enter really fully into Christian community like that, they don't come out of a vacuum. In other words, it's not like you and I can fully understand what salvation means apart from that language being cultivated over time, being given to us by other people. And that God doesn't just expect us to come to him in a vacuum. He also, in other words, expects a certain kind of community that gives us those categories and ways of thinking. So that's the evangelical form of community. There is a, a second way. We're still talking about how. How is it that Christians have been talking? And I'm, I'm trying, again, to, to present something of the extremes that are still within the, the pale of Orthodox Christianity. And there's, there's, this one is, is kind of more lively. That's a little hard to characterize exactly what this other perspective is. So I'll give maybe just a few phrases out here that some folks might recognize. People talk about uh, post-secularism or uh, resident aliens, even the really inflammatory Rod Dreher with his uh, recent book, Oh, help me out a little bit here. The Benedict Option? The Benedict Option. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, with Resident Aliens, that's the title of a book by Stanley Hauerwas. Yes. Right? That's right. Okay. Is he responsible for this movement or spokesperson for it? Or what's his, what's his connection? I'm glad you mentioned Hauerwas. He's, he's early in this, okay. okay, in promoting this second alternative, which emphasizes uh, the importance of Christian community. So I, I don't mind talking about him a little bit. Um, Stanley Hauerwas, he, he wrote his book, uh, Resident Aliens. That's the title in 1984. And what's significant, with two things that's significant about that book, uh, what, what it does, it suggests, kind of going along with that language in Second Peter about the, the, the resident alien priests, he suggests, along with William Willimon, that for the church to... To be the church, it has to offer an alternative form of community than that form of community that's being offered by secularism, and that at the center of that community is the story of Jesus Christ, and that if you take seriously the story of Jesus and pattern the community's life after that, you're going to have a community that, um, that just looks kind of different, that reasons in different ways than what secular culture assumes that you're going to do. It becomes a really early book in describing this post-secular orientation of this, this group of Christians. I just note here that 1984, that's, that's about the time that the moral majority is really vigorous. 
that's a conservative evangelical group. Right. They're interested in lobbying. They're interested in getting into Washington, using coercive power as a way of forming the Christian culture as they saw it to be more Christian or something like that. So it's really interesting to see these liberal-leaning Christians, Harawas and Willimon, and they're suggesting, you know what, we need alternate communities, whereas the conservative evangelicals are lobbying in Washington and grappling in basically okay. secular categories. Quite the contrast. It is. Yeah. And it's worth noticing. It's worth paying attention to. At the core, though, of the communitarian or the resident alien's perspective is just a recognition that unlike, and I'll get a little bit technical here, that unlike the kind of decontextual reason that was prized by the Enlightenment that's carried forward into secularism, I'll unpack that just a little bit. This decontextual reason, it's, it's free of things like language or of tradition or of authority of history, I just have reason with a capital R, okay? That's what's kind of at the center of the forms of secular community that are promoted and that bring, give birth to the forms of democracy that we're most familiar with here in the West. It's baked right into the constitution. Reason with a capital R. There were Christians, say the mainline Protestant churches especially, they bought heavily into that kind of decontextualized reason as a way of accommodating themselves to the needs of secular culture. It's almost like they became the pastors of the secular culture. No, was the attempt, I think, anyway. That's classical liberalism. Kind of accommodating, saying there's, yeah, there's this kind of general human reason that um, all humans have access to, more or less. What's happened is that these Christians have more and more begun to realize that there's more, more, there's more to Christianity than just some kind of least common denominator reason that we share with all humans and that you get just by virtue of being human. There's forms of, reason, of reasoning in the world that are actually just distinctly Christian. And not only that, that reason just by itself isn't actually enough for us. We don't learn how to live in the world. We don't learn to thrive just as reasoning heady creatures. In other words, just to give a picture to this, um, we're, we're not just heads with bodies thrown in. A lot of how we learn to value the things we value, a lot of the way we learn to hope for the things we hope for, a lot of the things we, we even choose have a cultural aspect to them. It's, that doesn't mean they're culturally determined, but there is culture, okay? And you might see where this is going. That means for a Christian to think like a Christian, he needs a Christian culture. He doesn't just have this generic decontextual reason. He has distinctly Christian reason. And because of that, he needs to also think about the kinds of culture he has access to, the kinds of culture he's building and encouraging and promoting, and also the kinds of culture that he's inviting non-Christian people into so that they can learn to think the distinctly Christian ways that Christians think. And they've begun to realize at the same time that not only is there Christian culture, but sometimes, I'll just say it a little strongly, sometimes the way that Christians think is a little bit weird. 
we have at the center this incredible inversion, uh, the cross. And that when that starts to affect how we think about the world, some of the choices that made sense before don't make quite so much sense anymore. And that's something that we can only receive as Christians by faith and because of Jesus. And we may not actually share them with the people around us who are secular. So this has developed into um, a whole approach toward thinking about the Christian and the culture and the communities they're fostering. So rather than focusing on some kind of you know, generic decontextual reason, what these Christians are pushing toward, what they're driving toward is, is an emphasis on the, the kind of things that we Christians might have, which are particular to us, our own particular texts, that is scripture, our own particular ways of doing life together, our practices, that is, our own particular ways of thinking that we might not actually share in common with the prevailing culture. And that's, that's approached, that's developed into a whole approach, uh, an orientation toward Christians, which you might describe as ecclesial, church-focused, or communitarian. That whole approach is still sometimes brushed off as being hopelessly isolated or sectarian by the people who maybe have a little more confidence about liberal ideas about reason. But this is where there's a, there's a significant interest right now among these other Christians. So, so there we have it. There's a kind of traditional evangelical perspective on God and the work of the Spirit on our behalf. There's this other view which is very interested in, in culture and in the distinctly Christian ways that we think about and orient our lives together. Well, this is fascinating. Um, I'd be interested to hear you talk a bit more about the two views that you've presented here. Um, what are the strengths and weaknesses of both perspectives? And what can we as Anabaptists who have, in a way, been caring about a community before some of these conversations began, what can we learn from them? Mm -hmm. It is really fascinating. The, the strengths and weaknesses are being worked out. Um, there's, there's some strange correspondences and interaction where people are finding themselves saying some similar things. I see in, in some really conservative biblical theologians, they're borrowing language from these folks who previously would have just been written off as hopelessly liberal, and that language is being brought over. There's The conversation is sometimes really intense and uh, sometimes really enriching. But I don't, I don't just want to set the two up as if they're at odds, the, the communitarian and the, the traditional evangelical. There's healthy conversation, in other words. There's, there's evangelicals realizing that it's, it's possible to so much emphasize the spiritual that they kind of forget about the physical and then just end up giving their souls to whatever government happens to be closest by to them. And there's, there's also these post-secular Christians, could say they're even post-liberal Christians because they've abandoned uh, classical liberalism. And they're, they're recognizing that Christianity has to stand apart from prevailing culture. And it's gonna look a little bit strange sometimes. It's gonna look a little different, a little unreasonable. So I'm, I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time right here talking about strengths and weaknesses, if that's okay. That, that conversation is happening. 
what I think I'll give just a little bit of attention here too is what can we Anabaptists learn? We have done community for a long time. It's, it's been central to how we think about ourselves and how we structure our communities and our Christian life. The first thing I just noticed that we can learn, I think, is that secularism is a dead end street that's becoming more and more apparent. That means that it, the secularism is it's unable to form a durable and satisfying community. And this conversation can help us to understand why. Why it is that it can't do that, and also how that we can recognize secularism, which works its way in pretty easily, and how to address that. That's one reason this conversation is helpful. A few other ways that I see this conversation being really fruitful, I'd mentioned briefly biblical interpretation. Right now, the, the field of, of biblical theology is, is flourishing because they've kind of discarded some of the old um, inheritance of secularism and answering to secular categories. And they're much more interested in just saying, what does this text as the scriptural text which belongs to this Christian community, not just the decontextual community of reasoners, but that belongs to Christian community, what does this text mean for us as Christians? which has led to a really, really fruitful way of approaching scripture. I can hardly recommend it highly enough. That's biblical theology. Um, a third thing we should pay attention to is education. We as Anabaptists have been, we've had our questions about secular forms of education in the 60s and 70s. There's a, a real exodus from uh, secondary high schools and in a lot of our circles anyway, with questions about some of the influences that were happening. We're pretty early in that. There's discussion among these other Christians about how to think about education for our young. If they're going to be joining Christian communities, what does that look like? Both at the, the primary level and at the secondary level, but also at the, the post-secondary level. And they're just realizing you can't, you can't just take a, a young person and add a, a few ideas about God and a couple of arguments about how to dismantle the, the assumptions of your secular counterpart and then kind of swat them on the back and say, you know, go get them. You're, you're now a Christian and you can, you can be fine. Education means whole life discipleship. It means incorporation into not just the general secular culture, but specifically into the Christian culture that they belong to. A couple other things, and I'll, I'll just move more quickly on this. Um, there's a real emphasis on the value of practices, things we do together, right? As Christians that we don't just do because they're enjoyable, they're fun, even though many times they are, but because they have behind them a picture of what life in Christ looks like. And these practices orient us toward that. There's a lot of emphasis on practices these days. The last thing is outreach. The communitarian, these evangelicals, they're beginning to talk more and more in terms of our outreach, the hospitality we extend to the culture around us, less and less in terms of an argument that if we would happen to get ourselves onto the floor in Congress, we could influence our culture in a certain way, or if we could wrestle our opponent to the ground in some form of public debate 
Now that's how that's how uh, we're going to manage to influence the culture for Jesus. And much more and more evangelism is being seen as a function of community. That is, you have a community with practices, with patterns of worship, and a lot of what it means to do evangelism is to invite people into that community, not just to lob packets of content or lobbying power at them. Mm. You and I are both members of Mennonite churches, and many in our audience are also from Anabaptist communities, I believe. What does this conversation have to do with us? How can it inform the way that we think about ourselves? What can the Anabaptist tradition contribute to the conversation Mm -hmm. that you have been describing? Mm-hmm. Now, how can this inform how we think about ourselves and how can we contribute? It, I think it could be really enriching. You, you mentioned it before, and it's just true. We've been doing this for a long time, or we've been trying to work things out in, in our communities for a long way. So there's a surprising amount of overlap between some of these, what these other Christians are doing in response to the, the situation we're finding ourselves in culturally and within history and to what we've been trying to do for a long time. I think we can be informed by some of these conversations. I'm just noticing here, I'm pointing out, like we're, we are living in a really interesting cultural moment right now, where the times that we're living in, they haven't been this way for a very long time, over a thousand years, right? The times we're living in now have more in common for many Christians with the earlier centuries of Christianity than they did with those middle centuries, where it was assumed that Christianity was somehow the dominant force in culture. That's not the assumption quite so much among many Christians anymore. That's a really interesting cultural moment for us to be in. We've got Christians now either side of the aisle, you might say, and, and they're, they're using this language like resident aliens or that Christians are now a prophetic minority or that we've been given the job of being exile priests on behalf of our culture, or that we should adopt a stance of exile in place. And, and a lot of this language is, is kind of familiar to us. It suits how traditionally we've, we've understood ourselves as living in one of the two kingdoms. I think that highlights one thing that I think we should learn from this. And I'll, I'll go for the negative first. That's this. I think that it would be absolutely tragic if we as Anabaptists, myself as a, as a Mennonite, if I would uh, sprinkle my children with a little bit of apologetics and um, give them a trade job, say, and then just tell them to march out there and serve the common good, which is an extremely secular way of telling them to approach the world and to reach the world. If I were to do that while there's many other Christians heading a different direction. In other words, it'd be strange for us as Anabaptists to take on ourselves basically secular assumptions about what outreach means, about what church means, about what making a difference in the world means, all of these categories that are really important to us, and more and more just adapt secular ways of doing those things while we're passing cars of other Christians heading toward more communitarian ways of doing them. That would be ironic. And I think it'd be tragic for us to lose that cultural moment. This is a time when we can relish and deepen our commitment 
to some of the ways we've been doing things. And I don't mean that in a thin and narrow way, to continue to layer on richness to what we've been doing and to find a lot of satisfaction and commitment and faithfulness within that calling right now. That's the tragic part. The positive part is, I think we've got some things, um, we've got some things to contribute. We've been doing community for a long time. We know some of the, the problems that can come with living in thick community. We've had some problems. We know what they are. We know some of how living in community can bring with it some challenges. We can say things about that. But we also know what it means to enter deeply into the Bible, to enter deeply in community with word and with spirit, with wholesome and thick practices, to regard marriage as something that's kind of assumed as being important, but also central, to have a pattern of life that just kind of doesn't really have to decide all the time whether you're going to church or not. These are real blessings. So I'm suggesting that we, we enter more deeply into some of the blessings that we have. It's a blessing to have certain assumptions and powerful practices packed into my community, which tell me something about what it means to follow Christ, about what it means to care for other people, what it means to do outreach. These are strengths. We can bring those strengths and reflect on them. And I think maybe even offer some waypoints for these other Christians who are really seriously talking about community right now. Well, that's really good. This has been substantive, so thank you for engaging with this and for helping to encourage a vision of community done well within our churches and communities. And thank you for joining us for this episode. Thank you, Jaron. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us for this episode, and thanks to our donors and partners for making this possible. To learn more about this ministry, view our About Us video linked below. You can also subscribe to our supporters' update at anabaptistperspectives.org.